I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Social media called it an air assault on Israel. Turned out it was footage from a video game. A lot of the concern has been centered around false information shared on X. It's been incredibly difficult to sort through what is true and what is not. Which right now is a highly costly mistake. War brings misinformation. Why this conflict is different. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, are they odd? or autistic. He's super ADHD. I noticed it immediately. The nebulous neurodiversity of Bob's Burgers. No warm welcome for the Queen of Canada. What are they planning? What is their end goal? How long are they staying? Romana DiGiulo's cold reception in small town Saskatchewan. And the NHL retreats from inclusion. Homophobia runs really deep in the game. What the Pride Tape Band says to gay athletes. All today on Day 6, the Wrapped Up in a Rainbow edition. It was uh, 6.30 a.m., and I was uh, sitting at the outskirts of the main stage at the party, and I think we heard, I think uh, it was the sound of uh, the Iron Dome, of a rocket shot and an Iron Dome working. That's Andre Perry. He was one of the people at the Supernova Music Festival in Israel last weekend when Hamas fighters crossed the border from Gaza and began killing people. My first thought was, okay, first rocket, Iron Dome is going to take care of it, um, and the party's going to continue. Uh, unfortunately, this is uh, not unusual uh, that rockets are shot from Gaza. And then it was, I don't know, 10 in a row, and then I understood that uh, we're in, it's a bigger issue. And then we were next to the car, uh, ready to go into the car, and I got a text from my wife with, with videos with terrorists in. And another guy got a phone call from his wife yelling at him to get out of there, that there's terrorists. We got into the car, we drove to the junction, and it was blocked already. And after 50 meters, after we passed that junction, we opened the windows and we heard an ex- like a huge explosion and gunfire and people were running, running. And we just, we just ditched the car. We just ditched the car. It could be still running till this day. And we started running and we dropped to the creek and we hid in the bushes while gunfire is all around. Um, and we hid in that bush for about an hour um, until we, we managed to, to understand what to do. In that moment, like I climbed up from the creek and what I saw it was like it was a horror movie it was a horror movie everything is on fire and i i i crawled down i crawled back to the bush and said guy either we got to get out of here i don't know where we're going but nothing is feels nothing feels safe and later we understood that nothing was safe but we need to get out of here and we started running in the creek we took as many people as we could Eventually, end to end, it took us like five hours to get out of there, uh, to get somewhere safe. 
Andre Perry survived the ambush by Hamas on the Supernova Music Festival last weekend. More than 1,300 Israelis were killed in attacks this week. Another 150 were kidnapped. In the days that followed, Israeli forces launched airstrikes on Gaza. At least 2,200 people have been killed there. Nearly half a million have fled their homes. The Israeli government has asked 1.1 million Gazans to leave the north of the territory ahead of an anticipated ground invasion. Israel has also imposed a complete blockade on the territory. Nothing, including food, medicine, and fuel, is getting in. Things are getting uh, more difficult. Hospitals are getting out of service, and people are going to be in an unbelievable situation very soon. That's Isam Hamad, an engineer in Gaza City, speaking to The Current on Thursday. Asiya Mathkur is a Canadian who's trying to get out of Gaza right now. She told The Current what the last few days have been like for her and her family. Um, actually, just, just moments ago, we had another family member seeking a safety where we're staying because the location that we're stay, they, they, they are staying in, mm. um, it's, it's going, everything is going down. They're just bombing all the buildings around them. They had to evacuate. So that was just a tough moment, honestly. And I hope, I really hope we don't have to evacuate this location. <laughs> I already, we already evacuated f- five times since Saturday. We've went to a uh, um, uh, supposedly safe uh, security clearance places where uh, it's used more for foreigners uh, who come into Gaza. And, and, and they actually, we got... Um, I called at 1 a.m. that we had to evacuate. We evacuated and it was honestly the the most scariest Mm. thing that we had to go through was in the middle of the night um, driving uh, in that area. It's it's very scary. It's very scary to be driving in cars too because you don't know if there's going to be bombs going around you any any second. Now, the next morning, this honestly, every day, we're experiencing more uh, worse and, 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 and more worse situation. And Sunday, it was, we went through hell. And then the next day, it's even more worse. And then the next day, it's even more worse. And that's just me now. I, look at the other Palestinians in the whole city. It's so messed up. <laughs> People are, 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 are honestly, um, they're, they're, we're losing our minds of the, the, the massive destruction and uh, the amount of people who are dying. I know so many people, like personally, who lost their homes mm. um, and 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 uh, who have been murdered. Um, and we're not collateral damage to 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 this war crime, honestly. Atsia Mathkur is a Canadian who's trying to get out of Gaza. She spoke to the Current on Thursday. The conflict between Israel and Hamas is now a week old, and it's already spawned a huge amount of misinformation online. That happens in pretty much every conflict now. But people who follow this world say the scale and potential consequences in this conflict are much greater. Justin Peden is an open source investigator. He goes by Intel Crab online. Justin, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's nice to talk with you. I think people are getting used to the idea that there's going to be an uptick in misinformation campaigns whenever there's a military conflict. But what is different about what you've been seeing this week? Yeah, I mean, this is an especially graphic 
episode of events, obviously starting Saturday with the, the remarkable photos and videos that we've seen, um, just the amount of graphic material we're working with um, and this, the sheer volume of it. Um, it's a real challenge. Um, but on top of that, it's the actual theater in which those events are occurring. Um, it's, it's Israel. It's Gaza, um, the, the Middle East. Um, there is no shortage over the last 10 to 15 years of old um, video and photos, whether it be from previous conflicts in Gaza or even the Syrian uh, civil war. Um, it's all um, material that kind of looks like it could belong in the theater in which these current events are taking place. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're sharing that material, you have to really kind of be diligent, uh, step back and, and is, is this photo even from Israel? And if it is, is it from this week? Is it from the conflict in 2021? 2014. I mean, there's a real, real long list to go down. Do you find that there is a willingness or an eagerness to share material that has not been verified by people who perhaps should know better? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be um, completely lying if I said it wasn't something that even myself and other members of the OSINT open source intelligence community um, was, was doing on accident. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when you have a conflict, you know, a conflict occurs in real time, whereas we, you know, we have to sleep, we have to eat, we have to work. Um, you're jumping in and out of that conflict in real time. And you may look at a video or a photo and you don't have that diligence. Um, and, you know, you have to understand, too, we're freelance. Um, we're very rarely on anybody's payroll. You know, that's somebody with great intentions still making a big mistake, let alone somebody who may have bad intentions um, trying to deliberately spread misinformation. I saw some footage from a video game being passed <laughs> off as, as, as images of, of shellings on, on, the, on Israel's borders. What else did you see this week that, that was completely wrong, that was misinformation? Yeah, well, you know, the video games uh, footage is a great example. You know, one of my keystone studies is actually the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And uh, that's something that we've seen very commonplace for a while now. And some of the pieces of misinformation we're seeing are actually combat footage from Ukraine. Um, this year, specifically, uh, AI-generated content. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen a handful of photos. Some of them have, have picked up uh, tens of thousands of, of views and likes on Twitter, completely fabricating maybe an airstrike or even civilian casualties that simply didn't occur. And, and how, how much of this is a deliberate campaign? And, and if it is a deliberate campaign, who benefits from it? The scary thing, and, and this is just how social media works and, and specifically modern X, Twitter, however you may label it, is there may only be a handful of bad eggs, so to speak, those that are deliberately trying to uh, mislead discourse and mislead others. But when that engagement train starts rolling and people are sharing that content, sharing those videos, sharing those images, that malice that they're attempting to commit is, is exponentially larger. It may be only a handful of individuals, um, state-sponsored perhaps, but at the end of the day, we all suffer, and um, it, I mean, it's a real problem for sure. Let's talk about X, formerly known as Twitter. Many people don't use it. It's, it's, it's not the most popular social media platform, but it does have an outsized impact. And what can you tell me about the changes that Elon Musk has made to that platform and how that may have contributed to the misinformation that's being presented on it now. Well, I'll say one thing for certain. One change um, is actually very recent within the last two weeks or so. 
um, is the way a hyperlink is shared. The way you share a web article, a web link, it no longer formats a title. It no longer formats a description when you're sharing a tweet. Right. Um, you used to get a really nice uh, automated header to the article. There would obviously be a photo from the article attached. Um, that's gone. And in the bottom left corner, about the size of uh, a nail, a fingernail, is a hyperlink, a link to an external website, obviously the source of said link. Um, this has been tremendously upsetting to see following the events we've seen Saturday, the amount of obscene graphic material that is circulating around the internet. I have seen at least five to ten instances on my own timeline of incredibly graphic content um, being thrown onto a timeline with that link. And my, my great fear um, that I indeed think is true is that many people are now stumbling onto content that, quite frankly, there really is no one seeing. That's, that's really distressing. But, but what is the harm done to the integrity of the platform and the integrity of the information on the platform when misinformation or, or something more mischievous or, or more evil than that is being disseminated? Well, it has always been disseminated. I mean, I, I have been here, um, God, 2015, 2016. It has always been a problem, but something that I could always guarantee and count and thank my lucky stars on brave reporters in the field, correspondents, you know, producers for newsrooms. They were always almost certainly automatically verified due to their affiliates with an agency, a news bureau, mm -hmm. and, you know, quality top notch reporting was always uh, preferred, if not boosted, by the algorithm. Um, and, you know, following these changes to you know, verification, anybody, you know, can get verified. And you're, you're seeing this sort of phenomenon here where, where quality, reliable, trusted, vetted reporting is essentially being um, buried under an avalanche of uh, misinformation and disinformation. Those posts are getting the clicks. Those posts are getting the engagement. And, you know, that truth is out there. They're still tweeting all of these correspondence. You just have to really, really dig. Um, and, you know, for social media, that's just not a habit, unfortunately, many of us really adhere to these days. What was the most egregious example of misinformation that you saw this week? I think the most upsetting on a personal level have been the ones that have truthfully um, due to the last 15 years of, of almost never-ending suffering, um, not only in the Gaza Strip, but the Syrian civil war, obviously the uh, ISIS insurgency in Iraq, and um, seeing accounts that have deliberately exploited the suffering of others within that 10-15 year time span, and have tried to pass it off as new suffering from this week. You know, there is an unfortunate um, bias in, in Western audiences where um, you know, it, it all kind of blends the same. All of these photos kind of blend together. And there are many people out there that try to advance their narrative by inflating the suffering of the past. And, that, that, and that's true. That's very upsetting. Um, but there, there are just certain things that even the individual consumer can do, you know, consuming social media. Take a break, you know, slow down before you share something. You know, this is a platform that I truthfully love at the end of the day for one reason, and that it is real-time curated information. Um, you are seeing tweets exactly when they are tweeted from where they are tweeted. Tread carefully and, and, and truthfully think about not only what you're about to share, but also, you know, what you're about to see consuming graphic content, it, it can cause real mental harm to viewers. Yeah. Um, you know, even recent studies saying you can develop PTSD 
And, you know, I will say this with almost certainty is that unfortunately, there's going to be more and more content like that shared over the next week. So just stay vigilant and just treat it, you know, as a real time conflict. Justin Peden, thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Justin Peden is an open source investigator, also known as Intel Crab. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. People can expect to see a continued increased police presence for the foreseeable future. Police in Toronto and Vancouver say they have increased patrols near Jewish places of worship. The RCMP says it's aware of threats on social media directed at Jewish people in Canada and is calling on people to be on alert. The warnings come amidst tensions over the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And a sexual assault charge has been stayed against retired Lieutenant General Trevor Cadieux because the case took too long to go to trial. Kadju was set to take command of the Canadian Army in 2021 when a complainant stepped forward to accuse him of sexual assault. Kadju pleaded not guilty in court and denied the allegations. A stay of charges means there's no legal ruling in the case. In August, a sexual assault charge against another senior military leader was also stayed because it took too long to go to trial. These are two of the first cases to reach a conclusion since the military started transferring dozens of sexual offense cases to the civilian court system in late 2021. Still to come on day six, a small town in Saskatchewan is wary of some new residents. They are Romana de Julo, the so-called Queen of Canada, and her followers. I'm Brent Bambury. It's been escalating and the people are getting more scared. Pride tape was really designed to be an intervention to disrupt that homophobia and be that visible sign of support to young players to show that they had allies and people who cared about them. Chris Wells is the co-founder of Pride Tape, which makes rainbow-colored tape for hockey sticks. It was launched in Edmonton in 2015. And this week, the company has been inundated with orders after the NHL made the decision to ban Pride Tape from the league. The NHL announced the ban on Tuesday, just months after implementing a similar ban on all themed jerseys. Last spring, seven NHL players refused to wear Pride-themed jerseys, bringing unwanted negative attention to the league. But their actions also prompted Carson Gates to come out as gay to his team. Carson's in his third year playing varsity hockey for Chatham University in Pittsburgh. He's been playing hockey since he was three. Carson, welcome to Day 6. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Good morning. What do you think the NHL finds so scary about rainbow stick tape? I mean, I've been asking myself that same question ever since they, it seems seemingly out of the blue, they decided to get rid of it. Honestly, it just seems the really loud voices online that are against it, which in my experience have been the minority of hockey fans have really kind of pushed the NHL into first off getting rid of specialty jerseys stemming from all the stuff that happened in this past season with pride night. And now, going from there onto rainbow tape on sticks. Getting rid of the jerseys really struck a chord with you because you've been playing hockey most of your life. What was it about the players who refused to wear the pride jerseys that made you not only want to speak out, but come out as gay? Yeah, it it was the weirdest thing of just, this is a 15 minute warm up, one game during the year that, you know, means so much to LGBTQ plus members of the hockey community just to see, you know, players that they love, they support wearing jerseys, supporting them. And hockey's a game 
I mean, I think a lot of people, especially Canadians, know that homophobia runs really deep in the game. Like from my experiences, I've had players, coaches from, you know, mites up to, to midgets using the F slur. That's just a part of the game growing up, unfortunately, and seeing, you know, these top players supporting you and you're not the outcast, at least for one night, means so much. Did hearing the slurs in the dressing room or on the ice make you either not want to come out earlier or not want to play the game? Well, for me personally, I didn't like come out to myself. I didn't like click that I was queer until my freshman year of college. I was probably 21. Um, it didn't click then, but it definitely is the reason why I didn't like come out publicly right away. I didn't even come out to my parents. So I decided to, you know, write the article uh, coming out about like the pride jerseys, stuff like that. But it's a huge factor. And reason why it took me so long was because that was just ingrained from my head from a young age that especially in hockey, you know, don't touch that side of your life, keep it there, hide it, sweep it under the rug. And it's crazy to think that's what the NHL is doing right now with pride tape, pride nights, you know, with especially Jersey stuff like that. When you decided to come out, how did the other players react? My teammates were incredible. The biggest reason why I was able to come out was the support from them, my families and friends. But, you know, a lot of stuff has stemmed off of that initial coming out story that I wasn't sure if I wanted to do because it just kind of bring more attention to, you know, who I am and myself, but they've been the ones pushing me and support. And I didn't have to question a single thing along the way because they have been like my biggest supporters through all of this. 10 years ago, I don't know if you probably don't remember this, but the NHL partnered with You Can Play, which is an organization that is designed to welcome LGBTQ players to hockey, especially younger players that might've heard the things that you heard when you were coming up. What happened to the NHL in the intervening years? I, I wish I could tell you this because I, I feel like in the past five or so years, the NHL's made great steps into making hockey more inclusive and more accessible for people. And I think ho- hockey is such a hard game to get into just because, one, it's so expensive. Yeah. And two, the time required to get into it is is, is absurd. And the fact that the, the NHL is really making that harder for people by excluding a lot of people is, is I, I don't know their reasoning behind that. doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Well, is that the message that you think banning pride tape is sending? Is it a message of exclusion? I, I would say so from the interactions I've had with people who are also in the LGBTQ plus community who are really into hockey. Like this is, it's hard to find people involved in the game who are part of the LGBTQ plus community. And so seeing that, you know, you're loved and supported, even with just tape on the stick, like, a lot of people think it's silly. It doesn't make a ton of sense from the outside. But, you know, seeing that support in a game where you're never supported really up until literally they start putting tape on their stick, it, it me- literally means the world. And until this becomes more normalized, we need stuff like this. So members of the LGBTQ plus community, we feel welcomed in the game. Do you think it's going to be normalized? Do you think that there's a generational shift there that, that will bring normalization, whether some people want it or not? A hundred percent especially like my teammates at Chatham right now, they, they've been incredible. And everyone else in my hockey journey since like coming out, they've been awesome. The biggest like hate I've gotten from it is from older generations or people who really aren't involved in hockey that much. Mm-hmm. From my experiences, this current generation coming up, it's more normalized both on and off the ice. So I'm hoping, you know, as tough as it is with time, years go by, that this is a more normal thing. And we're not going to have to have these huge discussions on tape on player sticks. Like this should just be a, a thing that people do to support. And it shouldn't be, you know, this crazy conversation going on. But unfortunately, the league has made it this way. 
I can't help but compare what's going on in women's sports and, and in particular women's hockey. The PWHL, the Women's League, chose Billie Jean King to be part of their inaugural draft. And she's a great athlete, but she's also an LGBTQ advocate. And their Players Association said yesterday that it was disappointed with the NHL. Why do you think the Men's League and the Women's League have such different messaging when it comes to pride? I think, unfortunately, it comes from the fact that, one, the NHL's never had a current or former player or coach come out. Uh, And then you look at the other side of things for the women's game, where it is more frequent, one, in women's hockey, but also women's sports. Um, and there's that huge stigmatization around out men in sports. And that's unfortunately a thing currently. And, and it's getting better, but it's still a process I think a lot of athletes are working to. And I think once we do have, you know, an out player in the NHL, I think that'll make a huge step of just, I don't say again, but just normalizing this process. This is a, a normal thing that unfortunately so many people have to keep a secret, hide. And so hopefully conversations like we're having here can you know, start that process of when things do happen and someone comes out, it's not, you know, they're not known as the gay hockey player. They're just a hockey player who happens to be gay. Like that's the way I feel like this direction we should be going. And I think we're getting there, but hockey is slowly, slowly, slowly was moving forward, but I think we're taking some steps back with these pride tape and uh, the jerseys and whatnot. Carson, NHL commissioner Gary Bettman is 71 years old. If he was a little younger or replaced by someone a little bit younger, do you think things would change? Um, I would hope so, genuinely. Um, I don't know if Bettman's the one calling the shots on this or it's the 32 owners as well who are probably older as well. Like This is unfortunately, I don't want to say the older generation, but you know, maybe some younger blood can help there. Or again, having these LGBTQ plus voices in hockey, just be vocal about this. Talk about it and show that they're such a big part of the current NHL and losing them would be catastrophic for the league. Carson Gates, thanks very much for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Carson Gates is a junior at Chatham University in Pittsburgh. The Queen has made contact with us in the town of Richmond. And ever since then, it's been escalating and the people are getting more and more tired of this, more scared. That's Brad Miller, the mayor of Richmond, Saskatchewan. It's a village of about 150 people, and it is navigating the presence of Romano Di Giulio and a small band of her followers. The group arrived about a month ago after getting chased out of another small town in Saskatchewan. They set up shop on the property of a former school building. Romano Di Giulio calls herself the Queen of Canada. I address you today as your head of state, commander-in-chief, and Queen of the Kingdom of Canada. This message is to inform you that Justin Trudeau has zero authority. DiGiulo rejects Canadian and First Nations governments, promoting herself as a sole sovereign leader. She issues decrees to her followers. The CRA is no longer a CRA, so anyone who tries to collect uh, taxes should be arrested. And spreads far-right conspiracy theories. There is no war in Ukraine. The war is only happening in the mainstream media and the deep state operatives who are busy wanting to start a war. People in Richmond staged a protest telling DiGiulo and her followers to leave. After that, local officials and residents started getting cease and desist notices. The letters accuse people of immoral behavior and threaten to publicly execute them. 
The RCMP says it doesn't believe DiGiulo and her group pose an imminent threat, but Mayor Brad Miller says the entire community is on edge. It's got everybody on their toes and people are just staying in their houses more and their, their heads are on 360, they're swiveling. Christine Sarteski is a professor of social work and criminology at Chatham University in Pennsylvania and an expert in extremist groups. She's been tracking Romano DiGiulo and her followers. Christine, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you so much for having me. Romana DiGiulo and her followers are living in this abandoned school in Richmond, Saskatchewan. Can we imagine what's going on behind the closed doors of that school? Oh, it's so hard. It it seems like they're up to a lot of busy work. Uh, According to the owner of the school, they are tidying up the place. They're cleaning it up. He says it's never looked better. So it seems like they're doing a lot of busy work, working, cleaning. Well, it sounds like the owner of the school doesn't have an issue with them, but how much is the group interacting with the rest of the community and what does the rest of the community think about them? Well, I'll start with the latter piece. The rest of the community, by and large, does not want them there. They wish that they would leave and stop making such a ruckus in their community. I see videos um, that people post online of they are taking videos in front of the school and then Interestingly, the people, the Romana followers, are actually videoing them. Uh, So there's a lot of this dual video recording going on. So it's not clear exactly what that's about, but they're very suspicious of people checking them out. When you describe the standoff of of the mutual videotaping, it does seem like there's enough suspicion between the two groups or some bad blood anyway. And we know that people in Richmond tried to push them out. How did DiGiulo and her followers respond after the people made it clear that they didn't want them there? They did not like it. They have been talking about it for weeks. They complain about it every night. They feel like they're being victimized, and they are constantly spinning more stories about how big of a victim they are. So it is something that really bothers them. And, and Romano DiGiulo does have a lot of followers, at least online, but, but so do lots of people. What makes her different? I think she's different because of how bizarre her beliefs are. Um, they believe in things as such as there exists these med beds that will actually help you regrow limbs or cure cancer or grow your teeth teeth back. Um, they believe that there's a fleet of spaceships that travel above her that protect her. So I think she has all these very bizarre beliefs. I think that's what makes her so different. This is being described as a cult. Do you think that's what it is? I do think that is a fair way to describe this group. Um, they are very devoted to her. She demands devotion. They have certain uniforms they wear. Uh, ex-followers have described her as abusive. Uh, if, if she doesn't, if they don't do the things she wants, uh, she gives them very little freedom. They have to tell her what she's doing, what they're doing at all times. So to me, that would suggest a call. And the police are in a delicate situation because people in the community find the group troubling and threatening, but it's not clear that they've broken any laws. How would you advocate the police handle this? I think that investigation would be very important to, to try to figure out what it is they're doing in the, in the community, to interview uh, the individuals who are in the school, to try to learn more about what they're planning. It. What are they planning? What is their end goal? How long are they staying? What are their intentions? So I think investigation is really important. The, the group is staging a meet and greet in Richmond later today. It sounds like it could be a recruitment campaign. What is it about Romana DiGiulo that would entice people to follow her? 
she makes a lot of promises that sound really great to people. If you believe in Romana Didolo, then you no longer have to pay taxes. You don't have to pay your car note. Uh, there's so many free things you get with Romana. Great wealth, the end of homelessness, uh, these great med beds that will cure you. So she offers these things she cannot deliver on, but they sound really great and enticing to people. So what's the end game then? How long can they stay in this community before things escalate? That is a great question. It's very hard to predict. I do worry that the temperature is going up all the time. I listen to their nightly propaganda news shows. They are constantly complaining about the town, making accusations about people who live there. I think that makes it worse. And I, I am concerned about who that might be bringing into the community and what their intentions are. Is someone going to come into the community who thinks that they have to protect their queen and do something violent? That's the kind of stuff I worry about. Christine Sarteski, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Christine Sarteski is a professor of social work and criminology at Chatham University in Pittsburgh. Still to come on day six, a play takes us inside the mind and hearts of the new right. We'll meet the director of Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Tell me honestly, do I look like someone who would be fun to have on a haunted hayride? What haunted hayride, honey? Tammy invited a bunch of 8th graders to go on a haunted hayride on Halloween. I asked if I could go too, and she said, shh, 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 and walked backwards away from me. That jerk-o'-lantern! <laughs> yes, total jerk-o'-lantern. That's a clip from the animated series Bob's Burgers, which just kicked off its 14th season on Fox. And if you're unfamiliar with the show, here's the premise in a nutshell. Well, Bob's Burgers is a traditional sitcom about a struggling burger restaurant and the family who, who runs it. It's based around the Belcher family. Uh, Bob and Linda are the parents and Tina, Jean, and Louise are the kids. That's Hayden Mears. I'm a journalist and autism advocate. He's also a film and TV critic. He is autistic. And he's just written a piece for Paste Magazine about the way Bob's Burgers quietly honors neurodiversity through its characters. When Bob's Burgers first aired in 2011, it didn't have great ratings, but it did develop a cult following. And when it was picked up by a couple of cable networks a few years later, that cult grew. The show won a couple of Emmys, and today it's more of a mainstream hit. But for its neurodiverse fan base, the show means a whole lot more. It just seems to be a source of comfort for people who've never really felt understood, especially by mainstream popular culture. I mean, Hollywood really doesn't get it right most of the time. They generally just kind of do one-note characters or plot devices, and they don't develop these characters and show us what their lives are like 
on a day-to-day basis. And there's no real compassion behind those portrayals. And so I think people like me can feel that they're being validated and represented. From the very first episode he watched, Hayden knew something was different. I remember looking at Tina and being like, I know exactly, I used to be a lot like that. Like I, Tina's inability to lie is a huge, so that's something that really resonated with me because when I was a little kid, I would tell on myself. No, I see a dent. There's a dent. That, that's a ding. Not even. It's like a little scratch. No, it's a dent. All right. We'll leave a note. You know, then again, for all we know, that probably was there, right? We have to leave a note. We have to leave a note. Okay. Okay. You're, you're so honest. Who raised you? I don't know. It was me. I did. So I've got a big smile on my face because she's so just... She, I love Tina so much. She encapsulates so many beautiful qualities that I associate with, and that many people associate with autism. Uh, like I said earlier, her, her inability to lie is a really big one. Um, she's blunt, she's got a flat, they call it a flat affect, which is like no kind of um, inflection in your voice. With autistic people, you have to look at them holistically. And so it's really, this isn't even a conclusion I could have come to about Tina after one or two seasons. This is something that I looked at over the course of a show's entire run, right? Because the first season, there are a lot of clues and I would have suspected it, but because we've gotten so much of her, I'm like, there's no doubt in my mind that she's on the spectrum. And so Hayden started thinking a lot about the characters and how they're portrayed. That piece took me about a year to kind of conceptualize in my head because Originally, it was just Bob's Burgers and autism representation, but I realized that it was more nebulous than that because the people who created the show, they don't, they've never explicitly confirmed these characters are autistic. But the argument that I make is that because it resonates with autistic people such as myself, that by itself has so much value because, like I said before, we're not used to being represented well in the media. You've got Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, who's just not a good example of of how we want to be seen in the media, because he kind of just plays into so many different stereotypes. And Tina is a fully realized character who has a life and we see her day to day. So he changed the focus of his story from the representation of autism in Bob's Burgers to neurodiversity. The way that I would describe it is that it's mainly like autism spectrum disorders, but it's actually, the meaning has grown to include dyslexia, I think bipolar, dyspraxia, ADHD, ADD, and ADD and ADHD are both pretty common comorbidities with with autism. Um, I have ADHD. And so that's kind of where Gene kind of comes into play in, in this all too, is because he's super ADHD. I noticed it immediately. Listen, Gene, you may get distracted from time to time, but I love you and I love who you are. And what matters most is Gene. Gene, are you listening? I am, I am. I love you. I love you too. But what are those people doing waiting in front of the restaurant? And that calm reaction by Bob, that's also important to note. The way that Bob and Linda generally handle their kids is exemplary because they remember that no matter what they're going through or what their kids do, that love is the bottom line. They love their kids and their primary job is to support their kids. But the thing is, the talk about neurodiversity is among the fans. It's never been identified on the show. And for Hayden, having Tina and Jean in the show without any labels makes a difference. So I'm going to preface that by saying that 
labels have their place. I would not have gotten half of the services or support that I have that have really helped better my life without the label. You need the label, the the formal diagnosis in real life to get services and professional help. But I think it's important because it's treating them as people first. And I think that with Bob's Burgers, it's like, no, these people are just people navigating the world and the way that they navigate it is just a little bit different. And you know what? That's okay. Not only is that okay, but that's beautiful. Hayden Mears is a TV critic and autism advocate in Chicago. Why are you wearing a hairnet? Because stress is making my hair fall out. Look at me. Tina, you have the fullest head of hair in the family. I would kill for that hairline. I believe you would. Take it easy. Take it easy. This is all wrong. I'm going to jail. Or hell. Or hell jail. What's for lunch today? Your lies. No! That's what we had yesterday. Look, I know it's hard, but I swear it will get easier. Just hang in there. We'll get through this. Hey there, what can I get for you? Oh, I'm not having anything, but I do have a few questions. I'm Chase Kaminsky, your insurance adjuster. (gasps) What's that sound? Uh, uh, what sound? I don't hear anything. Oh, that. That, yes, I hear that. That's probably my daughter. Destroying something, destroying someone, destroying the world, destroying ourselves. Every second we are creating and coexisting instead of tearing this place apart. I just, I just think it's miraculous. That's from the Canadian production of a celebrated American play called Heroes of the Fourth Turning. The Howland Company's production opened last week at Crow's Theatre in Toronto. The play was first staged off-Broadway in 2019, and it's set in a very specific time and place, the aftermath of the August 2017 white supremacist Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Heroes of the Fourth Turning revolves around a tense and tumultuous conversation between four young conservatives who are wrestling with their own politics as the far right rises up. The Howland Company production at Crow's Theatre is directed by award-winning Canadian actor and director Philip Aiken. Philip, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. How are you? I'm really well, and it's great to, to have you with us today. And I want to talk about this play because it seems like it takes people places where they're not always comfortable. <laughs> so Heroes of the Fourth Turning is set in the aftermath of the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, or, or riot which took place in the summer of 2017. What do you remember about your reaction to that event when it happened? I just remember thinking, oh man, they're they're really out of control. The whole concept of that kind of a gathering and then the counter protests. And it just felt like it was a part of an ongoing cycle of out of control things. And all we can do is sit back and kind of watch it. But this was amplified by the president at the time. The play set in the Trump era, obviously. It's the beginning of his presidency. Mm -hmm. And Trump made his 
remark about the good people on both sides after Charlottesville and really refused to walk back that remark. And a name that comes up in this play is Steve Bannon, someone that many of us came to learn about as a result of Trump's rise. But let's talk about Steve Bannon because he has a very profound connection to Heroes of the Fourth Turning. What is it? Well, he subscribes to that theory a lot. Uh, He believes that we are in the fourth turning. And in that time, it's a call for, under their interpretation, that young people of a certain age are now the heroes. They're the ones who is going to change destiny. Mm -hmm. And that puts into people this kind of mindset of somehow they have to fight, somehow they have to struggle. The polarization has reached its limit. Things are going to break. It's going to move into death, destruction, and war. It's a personal question for the characters in this play, what their role is, yeah. if they are one of the heroes of the fourth turning or not. Yeah. Is, is, is that fair to say? I think it is. Um, each of the people in the play are dealing with their own demons, their own questions, their own dichotomies, and they manifest themselves in certain ways. And I think that it is in that struggle that we begin to see them really as people Mm -hmm. because it'd be really easy to just turn people into stereotypes and caricatures. And that actually would dilute the power of the play. Mm. We have to see them as human. That's the thing that we worked on most of all. As an audience member, you get whipsawed because one minute somebody says something that you really kind of go along with. When Gina says, I don't believe in guns, I don't want guns on campus, you go, yay, that's great. (laughs) And then a page and a half later when she says, you know, the greatest thing you can do is to give birth to a child and be open to as many as God gives you. Hmm. And that whole fill the quiver philosophy. And then you kind of go, well, that's a little whack. I don't believe that. But you've been caught, manipulated and whipsawed in the best theatrical fashion. Hmm. Let's talk about how that results perhaps in empathy from the audience for people that they wouldn't necessarily agree with. Kevin in the play, played by Cameron Laurie, is is vulnerable. He's lost. He kind of goes through this crazy journey during the two hours and 10 minutes of the play. Can you see why the audience might relate more to him or have more empathy for him? And what do you think of that when that happens or if that happens? I think they see him as a searching a human being, one who's being broken by the search. You know, it's funny you use the word empathy though, Brent, because there is a piece in the play that really hits me every time. And uh, Teresa says, empathy, empathy, empathy. Liberals are empathy addicts. Mm -hmm. And that caught me and challenged me on a personal level. I look at somebody like Kevin, and I can just see that he's lost. He's struggling to resolve a dichotomy that is truly not resolvable under the the structure he's living in right now. Mm -hmm. Another character, Emily, played by Hallie Celine, Mm -hmm. might be the one who's the least conservative of the four conservative characters in the play, but she is in physical pain. And in one of the final scenes, she is transformed. She has like an out-of-body experience, and she no longer really is that character of Emily anymore. What are you going for there? What, what's happening in that almost mystical change? Well, there's, a, there's a, a very large noise that happens three times during the play. And in my head, it is the amplification of the struggle of one of the other characters, Justin. And everybody who comes out in the backyard 
opens and then closes the door. And as long as the doors close, that demon, if you will, that spirit, that zeitgeist, if you will, is kept in the house. And for the last scene, the door is left open. And in my head, I've always felt that that spirit that's been invading and infesting the house comes out and resides in Emily's body. And that frees her. Because if you listen to what Emily talks about, she does have a sense of empathy, but she's not changing her beliefs. Mm-hmm. The things that she says, albeit in a nicer way, can be quite astounding to somebody who doesn't have those same beliefs. And so the power of that last scene is her vomiting forth all of the issues that have been brought up in the play in one fantastic monologue. Huh. She's brilliant. Hallie's brilliant at that monologue, I've got to say. What was her process then? How did she figure out where she wanted to go? Um, well, she didn't know because we I don't like rehearsing endings of plays very early. And it was almost into the third week of rehearsal before we actually got to the ending of the play. And in fact, uh, when we moved into the theater after three and a half weeks of rehearsal, we had just barely read it through a couple of times. Because I believe that you need to have the full weight of the play behind you before you know what an ending is. Mm -hmm. And to go to an ending first seems ludicrous to me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were on the set and she sat down and she was doing it. And I went and I sat on the bench next to her. And I'd say things like, you know, this, this line, this is like, take me to the water. That's like the song and this is where it would end. And and just gave images and ideas to her, maybe a physical gesture, and then said, you know, work on that, pull that together. And this is why I say she's so brilliant, is that none of it looks like a director directed her to do a particular action or physicality. Through that wonderful alchemy that good actors have, they make things their own and Mm -hmm. then it explodes out differently. One of the reviewers of your production, this is a good review, but they said that Heroes of the Fourth Turning is an uncomfortable experience. What are you picking up from the audience when you watch them react to the play? Oh, uh, (laughs) it's amazing. You know, Um, you get uh, laughs, you get laughs of incredulity. You have, oh, a sister doesn't say something like that to another sister. Mm -hmm. You get a huge twist of emotions from the audience. Um, I've talked to a number of people before the show, like just sitting in the audience with them. And I'm amazed, you know, at the end of a show, whenever I've done this before, people always come up and say, oh, Philip, that was really great, blah, blah, blah. And people can barely look at me after the show. They kind of just do the most cursory goodbye and leave because they have so much to process. They've been so impacted by it. And I I love that. I mean, I often tell the story that... uh, When Rite of Spring was first premiered in Paris, people were so upset they dug up cobblestones and threw it at the theater. And I said, if I could get that kind of reaction out of one of the plays I direct, I would be the happiest artist in the world. (laughs) And this is the closest I've come, so I'm very pleased. Do you think we need more confrontation in commercial theater? Can we handle it? Oh, absolutely. Because... You don't sharpen a knife with cotton batten. You need granite or ceramic or steel. And and you have to sharpen ideas with other people's sharp ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's all fluffy and soft, I don't think anybody gets sharper. 
The play is Heroes of the Fourth Turning. Philip Aiken, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Brent. Philip Aiken is the director of the Howland Company's production of Heroes of the Fourth Turning, currently at Toronto's Crows Theatre until October 29th. Rift from the Headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz, three rifts linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the rifts, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. We were in Paris. Yes, we were somewhere else. My love, we were in Paris. Squirrel Nut Zippers with Bed Bugs, Chumbawamba with I'm Coming Out, and Taylor Swift and Paris. And it's Betsy Spaulding of Vancouver who guessed the headline we were looking for. France calls in the snipper dogs to search for bed bugs on trains. Yuck. Congratulations, Betsy. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And it's time, time, time. It's time, time, time. Give me a signal, kid. Give me a signal. Give me a signal, kid. Give me a signal. It's over. It's all over. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Sarah Melton, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tusfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's six days to the EU-US summit in Washington, one day to Poland's parliamentary election, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. Tell me honestly, do I look like someone who'd be fun to have on a haunted hayride? For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.